and in society at large. Okay. We'll work our way through this. Right? The question is, one of the questions is, is it God's design and desire that men and women play different gender-based roles? And in particular, did God intend men and women to have different roles with respect to leadership? Well, one of the things I, I, I want you to be aware of is that this question is not new. Yet it is more pressing today than it has ever been before. And I think there's a number of categories of reasons as to why this question is more and more to the forefront than it's ever been before. We could take a look at the category of what I'd call economics and technology. Right? We've shifted in society more widely from an agrarian to an industrial and now a techno or an info economy. Uh, we've had the development of effective birth control, which has afforded many women uh, more free time than they would have had in the past. World War II changed all sorts of things in regard to where women would work, could work. Public school, daycare, and a two-income uh, family economy have changed our society in regard to the question of gender roles. So economics and technology has brought about change. But there have been broader social uh, trends as well. Uh, there's been the universal movement for the rights of women. Couple this uh, and the right to vote. Couple this with human rights uh, movements. Uh, equalization in education, uh, women's liberation, uh, a big event in the last number of decades, uh, but also globalization uh, and uh, intercultural awareness. Right? All of these things have brought this question more and more to the forefront. There have been philosophical changes, philosophical trends. Uh, we could get into this more, but existentialism and self-realization, right? Becoming everything that you could be. Great focus on the individual. Couple that with successive me generations. And add to that the postmodern suspicion of structures. That if there's a structured leadership, we ought to be pretty suspicious that. The church isn't completely immune from these. There have been religious and theological developments. Particularly for the past 150 years, a large role for women in missions and revivalism. Uh, a growing emphasis on gift-based theology and gift-based ministry. The proliferation of parachurch ministries, where the historic church demarcation between men and women, uh, because they were parachurch organizations, uh, tended to be obliterated. 
more and more around us, there are egalitarian denominations. And to some degree, there's been more and more focused study on this issue, uh, on this issue with influential voices on both sides, and certainly at the very least, talk going on all around it. And so the question is complex. The question's complex. And whether you realize it or not, your view on this question is probably influenced by what kind of church government you practice, your general understanding of leadership in general, your theology of the spiritual gifts, your understanding of the relationship of church to the surrounding culture, your understanding of the role of experience and of social sciences to the faith, to your faith, how you define family and its relationship particularly to church life. Your, let me throw it a big word, your hermeneutic, how you interpret scripture, how you apply scripture, which scriptures are, if any, more important, receive more emphasis than others, and the nature of biblical authority. And we'll get into this a little bit as we move along. So the question's complex. But the question is also difficult. And if I hope to convince you of one thing tonight, this is probably the slide I hope to convince you of. Uh, is that this is usually a tough, uh, this is a tougher question than many people will often give it credit for. But we have this clash of a long tradition with a rapidly changing culture. We do have a history of oppression. We have increasing perceptions of oppression. That's becoming a, a bigger topic of discussion than it's been in, in previous years, even in, in our society. It's real, it's personal, and it's emotional for many individuals. It's not simply a cognitive, intellectual, logical thing, even if we'd like it to be. It's a matter of both theology and principle. Those, those things I hold dearly, maybe so deeply ingrained to me I don't realize them, and the theology that I hold. Historical examples of slippery slopes. Those denominations, those churches that have moved in this direction and then have seen moves in other areas and in other ways. Or not. The Bible's treatment on the subject. And this we're going to sit down pretty heavily in our time together this evening. and conflicting opinion 
by people of faith on all sides of this issue. Sincere, Bible-believing, Bible-honoring people come to different conclusions on this. And just to make it more complex, the question has implications. It's not just theoretical. Now, one of the things I want to drive home is that this is not what we would call in theological circles, and that's what PhD is in theology. We would say this isn't a first-order theological issue. It's an important theological question, but it's not a first-order theological issue. That is, it's a theological discussion and it's a theological point, but it's not to the same degree of importance as is, say, the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ, the reality of the church, and even eschatology. It's wedded to those, but it's of a slightly different category than those. But whether we like it or not, no matter which way we move on this, even if we don't move, it will affect the lives of individuals and the climate in our community, in this community. And one other thing I would like you to just think about, especially as you think about your process going forward and how you engage in your process going forward is this. That how you treat this issue models problem solving and the role of Bible in our thought and life. People are going to watch how you not only handle this subject, but handle yourselves and handle one another going forward. Uh, and again, uh, no matter what you decide or what you do, I, I pray that you do it in a God-honoring, loving because people are watching. People inside this room, people inside this building, and whether we like it or not, people outside this building. Leadership in the church. How do you decide who does what? How do you decide who does what? Is the question one of gift-based ministry? Let me take a moment. I'm a theologian, I'm a university professor. My wife is a certified professional accountant. What is it that your elder board actually does? What is it that your elders board actually does? And who 
Uh, based on that, do you want the theologian or, or do you want the accountant? We'll get into this discussion a little bit going forward. Are your elders actually fulfilling the role of the elders? Or are your elders fulfilling the role of deacons if you just call them elders? So it may walk like a deacon, talk like a deacon, sound like a deacon, need to be a deacon. And then the question, and then the question changes. I remember being in a, on an elders board and talking about this. It was interesting that all of them were very technical expertise kind of roles. So, you know, some talents. Or are there specific gender based roles and responsibilities and offices that, that supersede those things? And that this church, and certainly more than if those people are somehow in themselves lacking. Or is it a combination of both? And if it's a combination of both, which has priority? Which has priority? I took six semesters of Greek. My mother is Scottish, so I paid for six semesters of Greek. And therefore, I'm going to use it for the next couple of minutes. One of the difficulties, the complexity we run into when we're having this discussion, a very good discussion, a very important discussion, is that the New Testament uses a variety of terms to describe the past the current alliance elders are often responsible for. They include minister, deacon, from the Greek word diakonos, shepherd, or poimen, elder, presbyteros, Oversee, episcopos, ruler or leader, proistemi, and teacher, didaskalos. All of these things tend to describe things that often in alliance churches we expect of our elders. But in the Greek, there are different words for each of these abilities, offices, or talents. But even that one word, elder, presbyteros, in scripture, is not always used uniformly, really neatly, in exactly the same way. So, is when you, when you say elder, as Paul does in Titus 1, 5, and 7, and Peter does 
there in First Peter 5, and as Luke does in Acts 20, do you mean overseer? Because that's how the word is being used. Or do you mean elder as pastor, who looks after the, the spiritual needs of the congregation? Ephesians 4 and 1 Timothy 5. Or in some cases, do you just mean the, the person who runs a home group? That scripture seems to intimate. So we can't even just turn to a simple wordsmith because the words are, are used, like most words in English, have a, have a range of meaning. and can be used to mean uh, various and some, some different things. Okay. So it's a complex question. Uh, I don't think we should run from it for that reason, but I think we should, should grant that it's a complex question uh, and something we need to think about. The other thing I think I want us to think about, I want to uh, have you think about, uh, is um, the categories are not as straightforward as they're often presented. Uh, I used to be the chairman of the board of Christian Missionary Alliance. And I'm not anymore, so I can say this. I, there's one thing that I, I, I wish we hadn't done in the Christian Missionary Alliance, and that is we came out with a statement regarding complementarian and egalitarian views of women in ministry. And the difficulty, I think, in doing that is we led people to believe that there are only two options. And I don't think that's the case. So I'm going to call on my lovely young assistant, or Larry, uh, who's going to give you a handout. You're wondering where all your hard-earned tithe dollars go. Here's where they go. Uh, and you'll note, and I think I note on there that, that I, this is not my own construction solely. Uh, this uh, being heavily on the work of Colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Henry Dant, uh, Rod Remen, Dr. James Hayden, and we're going some of their work and filling uh, uh, sort of categories. One of the things that I want to suggest is that there are actually not just two camps, but there are actually a, a number of camps, a number of options on this question of uh, the exercise of authority by women in the church. And so what I want to do for the next little bit is just scan through these. We're going to do this quick review of the main options. Hierarchicalism. Uh, what is often called the traditional Hierarchical traditional. And in general, this is just that God made men and women different. He assigned them different roles. Both are serving for enlightenment, authority was uh, delegated to men. 
and women generally play supportive and complementary roles, complementary roles to men. In regard to church leadership, positions of leadership should be held by men, but only in there. Women should not lead or teach adult men in the church. Some traditionalists should not teach males at all in the church. Well, they would argue that God's design for creation was something called the male leadership principle. And they would say that this not only models scripture, but it fits the way we're made. Right? Take a look at a man, take a look at a woman, you can tell who should lead. It's just the way they're made. Uh, this, they would say, is the predominant model throughout history. It's the way we've always done it. They would say the scripture is pretty clear on this, and instructions in this way. Ministry, it tends to emphasize the authority roles of church leaders, teaching, discipline, and discipleship, uh, and decision-making. So their ministry tends to be that of uh, bureaucracy, authority, of rule. And in a sense, if we're doing a, um, a spectrum, that one's sort of out here on the spectrum we're going to take a look at. The next one we could call egalitarianism, or what uh, some people have called feminist According to this view, in general, God made men and women equal, and he gifts each individual uniquely. They may be biologically different, but equally valuable and equally capable. Every individual is different. Right? We can't generalize that women are this way and men are that way. Or that all women should behave this way or all men should behave that way. And so they would argue that when it comes to church leadership, roles should be determined by giftedness and personal suitability, not by gender. Therefore, all roles should be open to any qualified man, any appropriately gifted man, or appropriately gifted woman. And actually, they'd say for balance of perspective and equity on, on a decision-making uh, body or board, women should be encouraged to take leadership and teaching roles and kick against um, the, the, they would say the non-Christian, a hierarchical view. One of the things they would want to point out is that when you think about uh, what Scripture says in regard to the image of God, that it is humanity in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. 
that is made in the image of God. And they would say that you can just look in the Old Testament and the New Testament and find examples of women in leadership and ministry. And then they'd want to remind you or teach you that the new covenant that Jesus brings brings a expectation of gender equality. And then they would say, and don't forget, that Jesus' attitude to women, I guess the word we might use would be progressiveness. Jesus treated women with greater respect and in a sense gave them more authority, in a sense, uh, than his culture did or than his church did. So when they're thinking about ministry, they as service, not control. That the role of an elder is one of service and not one of control. And they want to stress gifting over office. Gifting over office. So this group can now be over on the the next group is probably back over this side of the other guy. Uh, and this is the group uh, often called complementarians. Uh, you can see the word there, equal nature, but an economic hierarchy. By economic here, they don't mean uh, having to do with money. They just mean a way of arranging. Just a way of arranging. So, in general... God made men and women equal in nature and in value, but still assigned them different roles to accomplish his purpose. Right? Men and women are equally valuable. And they may even be equally capable. But in God's wisdom, he displays things in order. He is a God of order, not a God of peace. And to maintain this, he assigns ultimate leadership, responsibility in family and church to men. And so for many complementarians anyway, women may uh, exercise a wide range of ministries, including even some forms of teaching, and delegated leadership, although it should all be done of an umbrella of ultimate male uh, authority or oversight. Again, one of the big uh, issues for uh, this group is this idea of God being a God of order, who requires some form of a leadership structure. And they would note that parallel to the Trinity, well, each member is equal. And in that case, equal in nature and equal in grandeur. Yet the Son and the Spirit freely submit to the loving leadership of the Father. And so this male leadership principle, they would say, is taught in Scripture and illustrated in the history of the church. It's not about value. It's not even about giftedness. But it's about a designated group. 
God has given. So ministry, women's ministry can take all sorts of forms, but it always involves male leadership responsibility. It's possible to, to distinguish between delegated authority and ultimate authority. So women may carry a level of authority in the church, but it's always as it is delegated to them uh, from uh, a, a male-oriented or male-centered, a male-located uh, sense of ultimate, ultimate authority, of course, under God. For some people, three groups has already shattered the category. Uh, I want to to now introduce you to number four. Uh, and I think they're distinct from the egalitarians. Uh, and that's the pragmatists, what I've called the pragmatists. And this is basically what they say. In general, the roles of men and women should be decided on the terms of what will be most helpful to spread the gospel. Because this is our most important work. And we should let go of rights and responsibilities, non-essential concerns, if doing so help us reach others for What in your culture, what in the culture these people find themselves, what in the situation these people find themselves will make the gospel most effective, presentation of the gospel effective? You find that and you do it. Therefore, when it comes to church leadership, it's just as pragmatic. Where female uh, leadership would hinder the gospel, it should be avoided. Where male-only leadership would hinder the gospel, women should be given leadership roles. Why? Well, they would say because this, this topic is debatable. And Christians are divided on it and have been for hundreds of years. But our ultimate job is not to settle this question. Our ultimate goal, job is to reach the world. It is again in the way of reaching the world. Let's find a pragmatic way around it and get to the job we do. They would say that the roles of men and women in ministry are not essential to the gospel message. I don't know if you disagree with them, but this is what this group But if one thing is clear, it is our commission to reach the world with. And they would say that Scripture instructs us to set aside secondary things for the sake of kingdom. And so, when it comes to ministry, primary focus is on service, not authority. And our first priority ought to be the effective preaching of the gospel. Not precision in secondary doctrinal and organizational Latter things get in the way of the former things, leave the latter things alone. 
because you'd probably be again. This when you thought you couldn't get any more complex. What we've labeled household headship. Here, in general, the roles of men and women in ministry should be decided, dictated by gifting, not gender, yet. Family roles may affect the responsibilities of men and women in the church. So for this group, the primacy is found in the home. The church is secondary. So in the family, God has assigned spiritual leadership to parents and to husbands and fathers in particular. And therefore, it's sometimes necessary for men to exercise leadership in the church rather than women in order to promote good spiritual leadership in the homes of the church's members. So, when it comes to church leadership, normally they would say it's unwise to place a married woman in a position of leadership over her husband because it, it works against this house leadership, this household leadership, household headship. And they say it might also be unwise to place a single woman in a leadership position if this would be interpreted as undermining spiritual leadership of the men in the church's home. Why? Well, scripture teaches and illustrates the headship of the husband as the spiritual leader in the home. They would say over and over. Again, and what makes up the church family? The base component of the church is family. Therefore, the church has a responsibility to minister and to honor families. And they would say, in regards to these passages, we're going to take a look at in a bit. That those passages which limit ministry roles of women should be interpreted as speaking to wives uh, in concern for the family. So, for this group, the ministry of women can take lots of form, but it must always respect universal principles such as God's intention for the family. Probably many of you thought coming in uh, that you had to choose from. Uh, I'm now giving you that menu you hate to see in a restaurant, one with far more choice than you have the capacity or time to choose from. Uh, but it's both my research and just my observations that each of these actually exists. Uh, and I've had conversations with people from, from all of I wouldn't be surprised if you too. At this point, what I what I hope I've done is just laid the foundation, set the situation, both beyond the church and inside the church, for the discussion. But I think, of course.
critical question in all of this issue is this. How do we apply Scripture? And we can talk about all that other stuff all we want. How do we interpret and then how do we apply Scripture? Well, I want, I want to give you a couple of guidelines for uh, the application of Scripture. The first is this. The Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, reliable, authoritative, and relevant. We can understand at least well enough. Therefore, we must hear it, listen to it, and obey it. Uh, the story of my friend Ernie. You need a break. I need a break. Here's, here's a story. Story time. Um, one of the things I get to do is I get to teach a course called the Lions that all new workers in the Christian Missionary Alliance have to get to faith. I like to think of it as get to faith. Many of them think of it as have to. Poor Joyce, I guess. My um, and I have Ernie's permission to tell the story. Ernie came into the Alliance to pastor a church in northern British Columbia. Uh, but Ernie had pastored before that, and he was a pastor in a united church. Uh, and it would have been somewhere in the early 2000s when we were having a discussion regarding the ordination of women, which is another step related to this question, but another step in this discussion. And it was in Winnipeg. Uh, and to be quite frank, is your family? I our family didn't really behave all that well, all that well in its discussion with one another uh, on this issue in Winnipeg in one of the years. When Ernie was in Alliance History and Thought with me prior to the meeting in Winnipeg, he could not tell me and his colleagues enough about how happy he was to be part of the Alliance. It was like the greatest thing he had ever met. And he had even wrote a song about how great it was to be in the Alliance. And he sang this song about how great it was to be in the Alliance to his classmates. Ernie's a dear man, but a bit of a geek. Anyway, he sang this song. So uh, I do, I'm in Winnipeg. I'm watching the Alliance uh, debate the question of women's ordination. And we are, we are not behaving. There were some just poor behavior, some good points of poor behavior uh, being displayed. And I actually, in a break, had to go outside for a while just, just to realize that God was still in control and the sun was still shining. Uh, and so I went for a while. And who do I see coming bopping down the street but Ernie? And Ernie's got this big, goofy smile on his face, and he's just sort of walking down the street. And I said, hey, Ernie, how do you feel about the Alliance now? I'm thinking, I'm not feeling so great. And he says, isn't it awesome? 
I looked at him and said, Ernie, you gotta, you're now the teacher. You've got to tell me how this is. This is what he said to me. And it stuck with me ever since I can tell you exactly where I'm standing. And he said, this is what he said. He said, in my previous denomination, we would have argued about whether the Bible had anything to say. My new family is arguing about what the Bible has to say about this. And as long as you're arguing about what the Bible has to say about it, and not whether the Bible has anything to say about it, you're on good. He said, you, you may have some stuff that you over, got to overcome, but as long as you're talking about how the Bible is relevant, and not whether the Bible is relevant, he says, you're on You know what? The story of my family. Let me get an onion. Ernie would be the awesome small boy. You guys are looking for a. Ernie is. I'm going to talk about Ernie talking later. I get to. Guideline number two. We have to grant this. That the Bible is God's word given through historical human authors. And God decided to use their words, their thoughts. If you learn to read Greek, one of the things you will notice is that Paul has a he has words and phrases he likes to use that you won't find in You don't find in John. And that John has ways of talking that you don't find in Paul. And so, to hear God's message in it, because it's human language, even if finally it's we interpret it using ordinary tools for interpreting human language. Word meaning, grammar, attention to historical context, etc. And we focus on finding the intended meaning of the author. We ask, what questions did Isaiah, Paul, or Luke try to answer in their writing? What answers did they try to give? Third one. The Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written first to an anticipated first century audience. And that ain't me. And so we ask, what was Isaiah trying to say to his anticipated readers? What was Paul trying to communicate to the Corinthians, who were in a particular situation? Or the Ephesians? who are in a particular situation, or, or to Timothy, who is in a particular situation. And what it means for us must always be influenced at least by what it was intended first to say to them. Guideline number four. As in all books and speeches, the key to the Bible's meaning is 
context. We have to study all that the Bible says. We can't merely pick and choose. We can't pull a phrase out of context and then have it mean whatever we want it to. Now, I think we have to give particular weight to what is explicitly, clearly, and widely taught. Using these things to understand what is less clear. And I think the best test of our interpretation of any given passage is whether it makes good sense in the larger flow of thought in the book. How does this influence where the author is going? How does this support the larger argument he uh, may be making in the text? So, what did it mean then and there? If you go to Bible college, one of the things you're going to teach you is to look for the author's intended meaning. What was he trying to say? What was he trying to communicate? And if you want to get there, basically they're going to tell you to read the passage in context, historical, literary, etc. Who is he talking to? Where were they living? When were they living? What events were going on around them? What kind of geography did they live in? What time did they live in? Who was king? Who was not king? And what did it? That's hard work. Sometimes to figure that out is hard work. In the words of a guitar player from Winnipeg, Maine, What does it here now? What is this construction? How does that transfer to contemporary situation? Well, we might be tempted. I mean, don't we just do what the Bible says? And much of the time, doing just what the Bible says will work really, really well. Consider. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You shall not murder. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Yeah. My uncle here, he very well. I'm the youngest in the world, but we can't work so well. Always the people that aren't here with that. I'm the youngest and smallest of three boys in high school football. 
I can't fill this room in the morning. The fans we mostly don't see. Be holy. Because the Lord your God is holy. Observe that my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. When you reap the harvest of your land. This one's really fitting for September in southern Saskatchewan. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or using your GPS system to guide you so as not to miss a corner. Uh, do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes of the column. Leave them for the poor and the corner. I am the Lord your God. Any farmers in the crowd tonight? I, 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 my father in I learned that I thought he was being a very generous and biblical man. He missed corners in the combine. That I pointed out the spots he missed. Um, it was dark and and, and anyway. Um. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Okay, that one. Do not wear clothing woven with two kinds of material. Okay. I checked. Do not use any meat with blood still in it. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or the edges of your beard. Do not put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Stand up in the presence of the aged. There he's here. There you go. There. One godly man in the whole crowd. Keep all... Okay, but here's the bad news, right, buddy? Uh, keep all my decrees and all my laws and follow them. I am the Lord your God. Okay. Let me tell you how to get out of this situation I just put you in. But that's the Old Testament. The law has been done away with. Okay. Love your neighbor. Okay, I, I can I can do that pretty well. I mean, it's not easy. That's pretty clear. Although my neighbor. Anyway, greet one another with holy kindness. How many of you coming in here tonight greeted anyone with a holy kiss? I well, good. I thought it was just my cold sword and was scaring everybody off. And notice, it's not just in there once. Five times. And notice, it's not just Paul. Five times. None of you did. And you're the good church because you're here tonight. Maybe you're not the good church people. doesn't just say it five times. 
five different books. So this suggests that our interpretation of the Bible is controlled by what the Spirit-inspired human authors of Scripture intended to communicate to their anticipated audience. It must be, or else then the Bible can mean whatever we want it to mean. And then it means nothing. Certainly nothing. But our application of the Bible's teaching must also consider the role of the biblical author's anticipated first audiences. So, what does the Bible have to say then? Question it. I want to take a look at some broad themes. Uh, and again, my goal here tonight is not to convince you of any one of those categories. It's simply to, to introduce you to a variety of categories, broad themes that you have to carefully and wisely and thoughtfully consider. Uh, and uh, perhaps inspire you to. Hey, some things. There's some things we have to just deal with. Sure. A little bit of Old Testament background. The priestly and the kingly offices were held exclusively by men. Get over it. They were. They were. The prophetic role was dominated by men, as far as we can tell, though there were often some prophetesses, but none of them are named, and none of them are explicitly endorsed. There are a few prominent Old Testament women leaders, like Deborah. They are, however, exceptions what seems to be the rule. And generally speaking, the Old Testament social leadership model reflected a general eldest eligible male model for family leadership. It is. Now, There are some New Testament patterns that we need to give time to. Jesus treated women a whole lot better than his society did. Gave them a greater appreciation and respect. When it comes to the twelve, young boys. Among the 70, right, this other group he had, we don't know. But I think it would be fair to say it was likely. But we don't know. We don't know. Yet, if you look at Acts, 
we have some women in some pretty significant roles. Orcas, Lydia, Priscilla, and Sledge will talk about in a couple of minutes. Uh, Paul, who gives the instruction regarding women, uh, named ministry associates of his who were clearly women. Priscilla, Phoebe, Euodia, Syntyche, Junia, etc. But even here, there are no unambiguous references to women in formal church leadership positions. They're just aren't. There's no clear women elders, no clear women overseers, no clear women shepherds, clear without conscience. And so, when we look at the New Testament, there are prominent themes that point to at least a kind of equality. But there are instructions on church leadership that appear to focus on men. And there are a handful of commands that explicitly place limits on women. Focus on equality. Genesis chapter 1. And here, the egalitarian for life. That which is created in the image of God is male and female. It applies to humanity without distinction. Genesis 1, 26, 28. That's pretty God created man in his own image, the image of God created him, male and female, he created them. Well, every biblical scholar I've read would assert that the image is cast upon humanity, not just for men. Luke chapter 8. Jesus breaks the Billy Graham rule. And he travels with women. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Shusa. Uh, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. I don't think that means that they waited on tables and cooked that they were the financial factors. Jesus traveled in ministry with women who were not of the twelve, but were still of the tribe. Luke chapter 10. How many of you have never heard a sermon on Luke chapter 10, the story of 
myriad pigeons. Most pastors will note this in their sermon. What is so scandalous about what Mary does is that Mary takes the posture of a disciple of Jesus This next one, I think, has become the topic for a, a book that recently came out uh, from an egalitarian, uh, at least a pragmatic perspective. That women were the first to witness and to proclaim the resurrection. That's significant. What does it say? I'm saying a lot in my job these days. I've only had some home, um, but it's saying something, it's saying something, Acts chapter 2, of course also this harkens back to the prophet Joel, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. They will receive the spirit. Even upon my bond slave, both men and women, I will in those days go forth my spirit. Acts chapter 16. Lydia's playing a pretty prominent role in the church in Philippi. How are you going to categorize it? I don't know. It's something. It's not nothing. She seems to have a fair bit of influence. Paul doesn't seem to speak against it. Luke doesn't seem to speak against it. Acts chapter 18, we have the conversion of Apollos. We also have the disciple of Apollos. And Priscilla is one of the teachers of this adult man named Apollos. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who are also in Christ for me. Uh, some want to argue that Junia is a male name. I find that argument pretty inconvincing. Prominent among the apostles. Now, does that mean she is considered to be an apostle? Not necessarily, but at least did the apostles think of her well? Yes. First Corinthians 12 through 14, right? Teaching on the spiritual gifts. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That all members of the body of Christ are gifted to serve, no reference is made 
to gender distinction. Galatians chapter 3, 25 to 29. Particularly verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ and your Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What's the scope of Paul's intention? Is he announcing the end of all distinctions in every area, so the end of distinction in access, or, or the end of uh, distinction in access to Christ? Does it mean that everything is open, or does it mean now that all Having said all that, we have to deal with this. If any man acquires, uh, aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. A man does not know how to manage his own household. How will he take care of the church of God? Now, he is, in some of these cases, the translators have told you this. They're inserting the word man when a given structure can just be if one or if someone. But there is all this other talk throughout the rest of this passage that is more clearly gender. First Timothy 3 8 to 11. Deacons also must be dignified beyond reproach. Women, and so there seems to be now a distinction being made must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossip, but temperate, faithful, faithful in all things. The question, of course, is, is the instruction on women, about the wives of elders, and deacons, or about deaconesses? And does the reference to women speak only about deacon ministry, or does it also apply to Overseer. Titus 1 5 9. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or drunken or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of, God, of good, self controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word of thought. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. Here's one of those places where you run into a problem between overseer and elder. Paul is using the word overseer here. 
is not nice enough. That's what exactly he means. Then you have these taxes, the prohibition tax, the headship tax. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The word man is there. And the man is the head of woman. God is the head of God. Now the question here, of course, is what do you mean by head? You mean authority? You mean leader? You mean source and head. There's some sequence. Eric here is an analogy. Right? Is it an essential distinction he's trying to make here about who they are by nature? Or is it an economic and practical? This is a good way to talk. Is he talking about men and women, or is he talking about husbands and wives? First Corinthians 11. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is glory of man, for a man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but Woman for the man's sake. And of course, you have to answer the question how does 1 Corinthians 11 7 in regard to going back to Genesis 1? 27. Where images applied to men and women. Paul quite clearly is linking it here to man. Genesis quite clearly is linking it to both. Maybe Paul's trying to say something. Men in this case, or maybe not. First Corinthians fourteen thirty four. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak. Let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. Well, first thing. Silence cannot mean absolute silence. Because 11.5 does say that they should pray. It's even really out loud. It's more like they're talking. Here's the other difficulty with this passage. Where Paul says, as the law also said, there is no Old Testament law that actually commands this. So what does Paul mean by his reference to the law? First Corinthians 14.35 And if they desire, that is, women desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. This one pretty clearly goes in hands. Of course, then takes it back to But why, you know, the question comes up why, why is this a command? If there's a law, you know there was a transgression. If there's a law, there was a 
stop. So what is it that these women are doing? Are they just asking questions? Are they interrupting service with questions? Are they judging? And, and where it says proper, or it is improper for a woman to speak in church, is that a social custom or a universal practice? It does mean something. It does mean something. Understanding. I imagine to this point, I have answered none of your questions. And in a sense, if that's what I've done, I'm here on my own neck. Um, but as you study scripture, as you come to this important discussion, you go, Study scripture. Just because it's difficult, don't lay it aside. Engage it all the more. I used to tell my, my sons, the test of character is not how you do it with things that are easy. It's how hard you work for things that are easy. Push high school football Somebody wants to ask me, do you want a really, really talented player or a guy who works really, really hard? I said, I want a mostly talented player who works really, really hard. Because those are the people who can. But as you go into this time that you're going to have, there's a number of questions that people should ask. Is this a core or a peripheral issue in Scripture? How often is it mentioned in Scripture? Now, having said that, if God commands you once to do something, I think that's all But still, I think it influences discussion. Is this a moral issue or not? Is scripture, is the New Testament uniform in its treatment of this issue? Is the language plain and the language difficult? Is this, is this topic addressed explicitly or implicitly in the scripture? And I would argue them both are binding. But, What cultural options were open to the writers of the New Testament? How well does this issue fit with other aspects of scripture? How does this fit with the practice of Jesus?
but in all things, charity. In all things, charity. Man did always exercise love, even for those that disagree. Even when they think there are nasty implications in their perspective, Nature of Scripture. I taught seminary for too many years. Um, over 20 years. And so some language I use just becomes language. So, perspicuity of Scripture. Going to go away tonight, know what the word persecuting is. Um, the easy reading is the clearness, the clearness of Scripture. That the message of Scripture is clear. The Reformation was all about this idea. That the reading of Scripture, the meaning of Scripture is clear to the average person. And I assert that all day long. That the message of the gospel is clear in the scriptures. But at times it is also opaque. Not everything that scripture talks about is as clear as everything else. There's no passage. That should drive us on to study, not to throw up our hands and abandon. So, as we close, three minutes left. Here's my encouragement. You're being asked to lead your church. The church is being asked to lead herself. You're being asked to lead yourself. Uh, and you're taking responsibility for everybody else. As you, as you consider and, and, and engage in this process, it's coming You're being given a responsibility for God's most treasured gift. His pride. True. She may not be everything she will not be. More so, as you do, close attention to the Do it with integrity. Let the process that you and others have put together for you work to the best of its ability in every process. Is life. My wife, Let me encourage those of you who are sure of your position to not shortcut study 
honor the word of God, not by merely honoring your opinion, but engaging the word to see what it says. Too often we honor our opinion. We employ God's word to bolster and feed our opinion. And that discipline that you, no matter what position, wrestle with the word of God. Maybe you'll limp the kick. It's okay. It's okay. And to do so, especially when it's especially when it's especially when it's The other thing is build understanding. Don't demonize the other. Don't demonize the other. No matter who the other may be. Build understanding and as much consensus as possible. I mean, at least find out on what find out what you agree on. You'll probably be surprised that it's more than you think. And finally. Very important decision. Complex situation. No matter what you decide, the spirit will be both in process and in We've been drinking We realize we know that we probably better to drink than Uh, these PowerPoints, again, will be available for you. Probably get this up in the next couple of days, guys. Yeah, get it up in the next couple of days. Um, and um, if you have any questions for me, ask Larry. Um, uh, but if you have any questions, uh, Larry knows how to get a hold of me. I hope we're at the end of our time. Thank you for being an attentive audience, for laughing at some of my jokes. Thank you for hosting me so nicely.